a lot of people don't have a voice. And so when we as athletes who have a voice can take the time to use that well to give people a voice, it changes everything. And so use that voice well, athletes. And it's just, it, there's nothing better when you, when you give somebody a voice who hasn't had a voice. It's, 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 it's what keeps me going. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we talked to basketball legend Maya Moore about her decision to step away from the WNBA and focus on fighting the worst of the criminal justice system. It's something no athlete in their prime has ever done, and we will speak to her. Also, I've got some choice words about Colin Kaepernick and the quarterback crisis in the National Football League. I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards and more, but first, Maya Moore. You know, so much has been written about your decision to step away from the game. And before we talk about anything else, I just wanted to give you the space to speak, particularly to your fans, about why you made this decision. Um, yeah, I, I was able to, I think, really articulate um, pretty well earlier this year, back in February, of really the heart behind... Uh, my decision and, um, you know, not wanting to try to take the time, um, right then and there to, to necessarily, you know, going into all the details that led me into that decision. But, um, you know, I think to say, uh, you know, my priorities have shifted and, Um, I want to be more available to some of the things that I'm feeling conviction and called to be more present, uh, in and, you know, family and some, some ministry causes. And, um, one of the, the more public ways that I've been involved in that pursuit of those priorities is, you know, in the criminal justice reform space and, you know, Jonathan Irons case. And so, um, you know, it's been nice to be able to, uh, have people respect my, uh, my decision and, and the space to just kind of be, and just to have a, a different rhythm to just, uh, to be at home and to be able to connect with people and to work on some other things that, um, you know, are very important to me. And, um, but now we're in a, in a place where people are starting to hear from me again and, um, you know, definitely, definitely through this, um, fight for Jonathan's freedom. I think it's been, um, you know, a a learning experience for me and in this space of, of reform and just continuing to educate myself and hopefully lead other people to being, uh, inspired to get involved and learn as well. So, um, yeah, it's just been a, it's been an interesting few months and, um, but just really grateful to be um, so close to uh, helping Jonathan specifically in in my time away from the game. Yeah, there's so much I want to ask you about uh, what you've been doing, but just since you brought it up, for, for our listeners who don't know anything about the case of Jonathan Irons, can you just uh, educate them briefly about why it attracted your attention so strongly? Yeah, absolutely. So 
Um, I was born in Missouri and spent the first half of my childhood in the middle of Missouri in Jefferson City. And so I have a lot of extended family that I'm really close to that live there. And so in the summers, after I moved away from Missouri, I would go back and visit. And so I'd I'd leave Metro Atlanta and I'd go back and and spend some time with my family there. And one of those visits, I, um, I noticed that this case was spread all over the table of my godparents' house. And that's the first time I heard it, um, started to hear more about Jonathan's case. And so, um, my great uncle that I grew up with had met Jonathan through a prison ministry program or a choir program. And, uh, over time, my great uncle started to see potential in Jonathan and basically mentored him. And, um, he, he kind of became a part of our family. And, and then my, my great uncle encouraged my godparents to get to know Jonathan and they got to know him and started to learn about the facts of his case and learn about his life. And were just appalled when they realized like, this is a wrongful conviction case. They, they went and got his file, his case and looked at the facts and, they were just outraged and their minds were blown by how does this happen to a 16 year old? And so, um, Jonathan grew up, um, in Metro St. Louis, didn't have a lot of money, um, was raised by his great aunt. He's kind of a, unfortunately kind of tale as old as time story of teenage black boy, um, tired of being scared and poor joins a gang and he's basically living in a gang lifestyle on the street, um, for his early teen years. And at that point, when he was 16, he got uh, arrested for an, um, a non-fatal uh, burglary, uh, armed burglary. Um, and so he was picked up for the crime. There was no physical evidence, no DNA, no footprint, fingerprint evidence that connected him to the crime. He had alibi witnesses that were never called. Um, he was uh, interrogated without uh an adult present. Um, there was eyewitness, uh, procedural misconduct, police misconduct, prosecutorial misconduct. And, um, he was given a million dollar bail, uh, a 16 year old. Uh, I guess he was a flight risk. He didn't have a driver's license and he had a million dollar bail. So just things like that. And that was put in the paper there were false things said about him in the paper. And so you just read all of this in his, in his case. But, uh, unfortunately in our justice system, if, there's um, misconduct at the prosecutorial level. Uh, things like this happen. He was sentenced to 65 years for a non-fatal burglary, armed burglary. So whoever did the crime shouldn't have gotten 65 years. So it's just list after list after list. And you're just reading these things and you're like, how is this happening? And so my mind at that point became open to the reality of mass incarceration in our country. And I was 18 years old when I met Jonathan for the first time, went to visit him in prison with my godparents. And um, yeah, that was 12 years ago and just started me on this journey of just getting to know him, developing a friendship with him, you know, him becoming a part of our, you know, essentially our family and, and, and wanting to help him and um, just learning about his life and seeing how he um, was just doing everything that he could to fight for his freedom, taught himself law, um, got so good at law that he's actually helped a couple of guys get their freedom and go home. Wow. Uh, and so he's just an inspiration. And so over the years, I've just been inspired by his life trying to help him and learn. And then a couple of years ago, I got the the courage to start to use my voice and my platform to speak out for his case and his his cause and the greater cause. And, and uh, was 
through my educational journey, I, I learned that the, the one of the lanes that I can help fight mass incarceration is by helping to raise awareness of the power that our prosecutors have in our justice system, because they're essentially the most powerful actors in our justice system. And when there's prosecutorial misconduct, justice doesn't happen. And so I started a nonprofit called Win With Justice, which is um, an educational platform to help people uh, understand the power of prosecutors, but also to help us to understand that we need to redefine what a win is in our justice system. We need to win with justice and not just get convictions for prosecutors. And so um, prosecutors are also voted in. These are things that I didn't know. You know, I'm on the grind trying to win championships all around the world. And in the meantime, I'm really not becoming as an informed citizen as I would have liked to have been. And so I'm learning these things about, wow, I've never even paid attention to who my prosecutors are. And, but we vote for these men and women. And, and so I'm just learning things, trying to help other people learn um, the power of prosecutors. And when prosecutors do their jobs well, our communities are healthy. And so, um, yeah, that's just kind of my journey of how I got inspired to get involved with this work and, who Jonathan is and um, a big, a big hearing is coming up for him on October 9th. And we are hopeful that uh, the judge will be able to clearly see the facts and be able to overturn his conviction and um, that the state won't, won't, won't fight the obvious evidence and, and do the right thing. And um, I launched a change.org petition earlier on uh, uh third week of September and um it's been going really well just to spread the word and the awareness of Jonathan's cause and the general cause. And it's just gained a lot of momentum. So if people can continue to sign their name to the petition and just add to the call for justice for, for, uh, for Jonathan's situation for a fair trial, but, but also, um, in general, just that justice needs to, to gain momentum in the culture of our justice system. Yeah, I was going to ask you what people can do if they're, they're moved by your words, by, by what's happening with Jonathan's case. So obviously connecting with the change.org p- a petition would be something people can do. And I'll, I'll put it out on our Twitter feed so people who listen to the pod can get through to it. But what what else do you, do you say when people invariably come to you and say, what can we do, Maya, to help? Yeah, so I'm I've been learning... Uh, of what we can do, because that's been my question as I've, uh, you know, I've dug deeper into this world of criminal justice reform and the problem of mass incarceration. It's like, what can we do? It's, it's a massive problem and it's a very old problem and it's an intimidating problem because it just goes back so deep into the roots of our, um, of our, of our country and just, um, just the evils of human trafficking and and slavery and just everything that that we've come from, from our country that unfortunately is still woven pretty deep into the fabric of our, of our culture. And I'd say number one is educate yourself, you know, take the time to go on winwithjustice.org and learn about, um, you know, how justice works in our, in our country and, um, watch documentaries, you know, talk to, uh, try to talk to people in your community that um, have some sort of expertise or can point you in a direction to help you educate yourself on where we come from. I would say the number one thing I'm pushing right now for people is to get connected with Equal Justice Initiative, which is 
Brian Stevenson's organization down in Montgomery, Alabama. They have an amazing wealth of resources and years and years and years of carefully articulating our history and the issues. And if you have an opportunity, go down to Montgomery, Alabama and go to the Legacy Museum. And and it, it'll be it'll be really hard to go through, but it'll be really, really good as well. You'll be you'll walk out of there a better human being and it'll help you to be able to move forward and knowing what you can do next to help um, bring us uh, further as a people and when it comes to justice. And so, you know, organizations like Equal Justice Initiative can give you educational information. But I'd also say figure out who your prosecutors are. That's one of the things that's one of the first steps is learn who your prosecutor is and pay attention in some of those local elections at the smaller scales when when these things are getting set in place to to see if your prosecutors care about reform and care about justice and for everybody in your community, not just, um, you know, people who have the means. So um, I'd say those are a a couple of places to start. Um, And also just at the basic level, when with justice is about seeing people. So not everybody can necessarily jump in and become an expert in voting, but you can try to see your neighbor. You can try to have a conversation with somebody that isn't exactly like you or open your eyes up to your neighborhood and the people in your community or the people who uh, don't have as much as you and and just simply start to cultivate community um, in a way that maybe you haven't before because without community, we don't have justice. That's really... That's really what the heartbeat of Win With Justice is. It's about community. And when we have restored family and restored community, justice will roll more naturally. And so um, there's so many ways you can do something, whether it's simply seeing somebody that you haven't seen before in your community or educating yourself or going to resources like EJI and and, and then becoming a little more engaged in, in who your prosecutors are, who are the leaders of justice in your community. You mentioned the importance of educating yourself. Has there been a particular book that you've read uh, since you've either since you've started doing this work or since you stepped away from the game? Something that you recommend people read? Yeah, oh, there's there's we have no excuse in this day and age. Um, there's so many great resources out there. Um, like I mentioned, I mean, the Equal Justice Initiative is is wonderful. Um, I watched documentaries like Thirteenth several years ago. Um, the new Jim Crow with Michelle Alexander, um, you know, Brian Stevenson's just mercy. Uh, there's a movie coming out later on this year with that. Um, those are, those are really good places to start. Um, and I, I feel like that, that could take up, you know, a good chunk of your time of just kind of taking those resources in. Would, would you describe yourself at this point as uh, you know, there's a big movement about prison abolition um, are you there yet? Are you there at this point with, with your studies and what you've seen? Um, I haven't read too much. I've heard that talked about. Um, I was able to have some conversations with some, um, uh, really helpful women who were involved in, you know, either a prosecutor or in law out in LA. And, um, one of the women I remember her mentioning, um, the, the, the point of trying to work to a place where we, where we shouldn't need prisons. Um, and I hadn't, I had never thought about that before. And 
I think the heartbeat behind that desire is the same of what I mentioned earlier, is that when our communities are are healthy enough and are protected and safe, we should be able to kind of police ourselves in a sense of we should care enough to look out for each other and to um, hold each other accountable in our own communities to be able to not have as much of a need for necessarily a policed culture. And so I don't know if that's, you know, really a realistic reality, but the heartbeat behind it, I really do like of, um, the goal isn't to have a bigger, more powerful police force. The goal is to see each other enough in our communities so that we don't need to be super reliant on a police and prison system because we are, our communities are healthy and well. If we have a high uh, prison and need for police, that means our communities are broken. And so I do agree with that of if, if, if we can get our communities healthier and healthier and, and help each other have healthier communities, um, we won't need to worry about some of these issues as much. So, so I, I really appreciate that answer. I, I have to put the spotlight back on you now, now that it's almost like we did the meat and potatoes here. Yeah. And I got to ask you, um, a little, get a little bit of dessert here. Like, cause this is the thing that I've been wondering when people heard I was going to interview, they've been wondering, I mean, you've spent probably half your life on the grind of, you know, n- nutrition, training, chasing championships, medals, all of it. What's a typical day for you like now? And how, how does that feel? Yeah. That's a great question. I wish I could answer you like a typical day. I don't know if I've had a typical day since I made that announcement in February, but um, I think I've just, I've I've had to kind of get used to being not in a rhythm. You know, like you mentioned, I am an athlete. And so most of my life, I started playing organized ball when I was eight. So I'm 30. And so it's like two thirds of my life. I've been in some sort of season or rhythm of life revolving around sports. And so it has been um, different to kind of step out of that rhythm, um, even though I have taken time intentionally over the course of my career to have some time at home. Um, I've lost money over the course of my career because I've chosen to play half seasons and not play full seasons overseas so that I can get some rest and some connection with my community and church family and, and know how to not be on. And so, um, I, I have been able to step away from the game and in little pockets, um, here and there, but in general, I've been, like you said, on the grind and, um, always thinking about the next season or the next thing. So I still work out. I still try to try to eat, um, like I know is, is, is helpful for me. Um, but you know, there's no question I've been enjoying some, some different foods that I, I typically couldn't get away with. Um, especially being here in Atlanta, it's very easy to enjoy some Southern food. Um, but, um, I've been able to connect with some folks at my church, like, uh, through, through choir. Like I've, I've, I love to sing. I've been singing ever since I was a kid. I come from a very musical family. And so I've been able to, to really just serve and enjoy getting a chance to connect with other musical people and, and, and serve on Sundays that way. 
um, just connecting with my family. Now that that sounds that sounds remarkable. Ha- have you shut out the WNBA world, or have you been following the season? Yeah, it's been. Um, I'd say I've been keeping up a little bit. Um, you know what I told myself I was going to not be a pro basketball player for a year and then come back around and and figure out what's next and to really let myself just kind of disconnect and and feel what see what that feels like and so I haven't um been keeping up like I necessarily would if I was in season um so yeah it's definitely strange but because I have so much in my life that I'm investing in um, you know, I feel, um, full because I'm, I'm doing things, I'm showing up for things that are meaningful to me. Um, you know, I've been able to speak here and there in some ministry context. I've been able to, you know, work on Jonathan's efforts. And, um, so I don't have like a normal, it's just kind of a month by month, week by week, um, visiting family and friends, um, you know, maintaining a household. I mean, that's, you know, gotta, you know, gotta cook, gotta keep the house clean, you know, run errands. So just kind of normal, ordinary things as well. Um, have you, have you taken a moment? I mean, we do a lot of sports history on this podcast and I want to know, have, have you taken a moment to think about or have other people spoken to you about how unprecedented your decision really has been? I mean, this idea of stepping away from the sport because you feel like this broader calling when you're in the prime of your career. I mean, it's really nothing we've seen at the top of the athletic pyramid. Has has that been something you've reflected on yet? Or do you think you'll do that more in the future? (laughs) I absolutely have reflected on that as I was figuring out this was the direction I needed to go in. Um, Like people just don't do that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, there's no question when I was figuring out what my next step was going to be, how wild this, this idea is. Um, but I also, I think, um, what I'm doing, I also think what I'm doing is revealing kind of the fullness of my human side. Um, not my human side, but just the fullness of my humanity and, and that, um, our sports scene is not always set up to necessarily show the fullness of our human side because we're just so focused on the sport and the competition and the season. And um, sometimes it's when you step away and press pause and say stop that you really get to remember what it is to be human. And Um, which is why (laughs) it's so shocking because in our culture, we don't often press stop. We don't press pause. We are a culture of always on the move, always on the grind, always busy, always into something. And, you know, also just in a, you know, in a worldly sense of you trying to make money, you're getting paid, you know, you're, you're winning your legacy and and all these things that are so easy to get caught up in and to focus on. Uh, but I've I've always tried to be somebody that hopefully points people to the bigger picture and 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 the things beyond basketball because that's who who I am that's who we are we are you know we're we're human beings and and we're 
what matters are, are things that are beyond uh, our craft. Um, so I, I just think, I just think that, um, you know, that's, that's one of the things that hopefully is, is a result of, of my decision, but it's definitely shocking for sure. Now I'm, I'm definitely not asking you to name names, but when it comes to your WNBA colleagues, your Connecticut family, ha, ha, would you describe it as a hundred percent supportive of your decision? Was it mixed? Were people like, "What are you doing? Wait five years"? I mean, what what was the general reaction of your peers? Um, I would say I was so um, encouraged by the support that I got from my Lynx family, the support um, I got from my immediate family and friends. Uh, I think the people that, that know me, um, they know that I am somebody that cares about life beyond my awards and championships. And so it made sense um, to the people who have been walking closely with me and doing life with me um, and care about me as a person more than as a teammate or as an athlete. Um, but, you know, the people that don't know me um, might be thinking like, what is she doing? But I don't necessarily listen to a, a ton of outside voices, um, but the people who I trust their their opinion and and their their um, their insight um, have been extremely supportive, and it's given me a lot of a lot of energy and momentum um, as I've been able to enter into this season. Can you give a percentage as far as the chance of you coming back? I know it's not decided yet, but where where, where do you think you're tilting? Well, I've I've tried to be just for my own sanity and everyone else's to try to, to really just take this year and go the full year. And then I don't really like to speculate and I don't like to, um, you know, I know speculation sells, but I don't, I don't like to, um, I don't, I really am intentional about, um, you know, what I say and, and, and meaning what I say. And when I, when I say I want to wait a full year, and come back to the table. That's, that's really what I want to do because ultimately until that, that time in the spring comes, it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And I just want to stay focused on the things that I, I want to stay focused on right now, but, um, yeah, that's where I'm at. And, and lastly, I know this is tough to answer, but if hypothetically you'd been born 10 years earlier, had the same career, do you think you still would have made this decision or has the social context around you with all these athletes who've been speaking out in recent years, did that have a strong effect on you wanting to take this step? Yeah, that's a hard question. The what if, um, you know, I think it's obviously impossible to know the answer to that question, but I will say my decision um, to take this shift in this time, um, is not solely on criminal justice reform. I think criminal justice reform, uh, it's been a part of my life 
for many, many years while I was playing. Um, but the, the conviction to, to shift and take this time, um, I think is connected to many, many aspects of my life of, of just wanting to have the rest, wanting to be connected to my community, wanting to be connected to my family. Um, and then, and then out of that connection, I can be more present in this criminal justice reform space, if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want people to think the sole driving factor was Jonathan's case in criminal justice reform, but his case and reform is one of the things that I want it to be more, more present for. Um, so. Wow. That's, that's beautiful. Um, and, and just one last question I got to ask you just the, the power of athletes. Like mm -hmm. why do you think it makes such a difference when an athlete steps away from the field and actually says something about these issues? Why do you think it has that level of amplification in our society? And why does it matter for athletes to use their voices? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things I, I say is I, I don't think every athlete is called to do, um, the advocacy of, of some of the super powerful people in the past. Like it takes a unique person and a special person to be able to really sacrifice and commit and invest in some of these causes and everybody's got to make their own decisions. But I, I just, I do want to encourage athletes not to forget that they are citizens too. And I, I get it. You know, what it takes to do what we do at the level that we do it is it's, it can feel all consuming. And that's why people respect us because we, we're talented and we have a ridiculous amount of commitment to our craft. And, um, I think that's why people listen. They, you know, sports has an ability to bring people together. Um, but those moments when athletes remember that we're citizens and we can impact our communities, um, it's just so powerful. I think that it's, it's disarming, you know, when athletes can speak into these issues um, if you come at it with a humility and a level of education. And so, um, we have a powerful platform. And so I always encourage people to steward your influence. Well, we all have different levels of influence, but we all have to steward our influence. Well, and when you have a lot of influence, um, use it, use it while you have it. And if you can use it to help lead people towards education and caring more about their communities, go for it. Um, that's, that's, that's how I feel. But, um, but we also have to keep in mind that you don't want to abuse your platform and, um, you know, you want to make sure that you're respectful and you're humble, but you're, you have conviction about what you're doing conviction based off of understanding what's going on and the best that you can and, um, leading, leading people to do the same. So, um, Again, I don't, I don't think the level of commitment that I have is not necessarily saying everybody should do this because, um, you, you know, we all have our own path to, of, of what we're called to do. But um, it's definitely worth it when you see the hope that you can give people. Um, one of the 
the best parts of this experience for me is hearing in Jonathan's voice the the appreciation and the gratitude of having a voice when all these years he's been forgotten and unseen and experiencing injustice and because nobody you know he didn't really have a voice my godparents thank god would 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 call in and inquire when things would happen to him in prison but a lot of people don't have a voice and so when we as athletes who have a voice can take the time to use that well to give people a voice it changes everything and so um use that voice well athletes and um it's just it there's nothing better when you when you give somebody a voice who hasn't had a voice um it's 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 what keeps me going any any chance you do in a book man i've got <laughs> 80 million books in my head so i will uh i'm i'm sure you keep us posted in the future uh you will know when when uh when the first one is on deck but uh cannot wait I'm excited. I know Jonathan has a story, more of a, mm-hmm. his story in his own words that I'm excited to see come out. So you you for sure will see more. <laughs> right on. Well, Maya Moore, I really do appreciate your time. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Absolutely, Dave. Thanks so much. Be well. You too. We'll be back right after this, after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and the nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now we've got some choice words about Colin Kaepernick and the quarterback crisis in the National Football League. Okay, look, we all know quarterbacks are the stars of the NFL. On each individual team, they are the face that runs the place. Shout out AJ Styles. In a game where helmets consign so many players to anonymity, it's the quarterback who gets the shine, the commercials, and the platform. Now they're trusted to say nothing with this platform, and they invariably hold up their end of the bargain. Now the league has attempted to protect its most valuable pieces of merchandise by outlawing any egregious contact that could place QB1 at risk. Now, unless you hit a quarterback directly at the navel and also take pains to not land with your body weight on top of him, otherwise known as tackling, you are destined for all kinds of penalties. Such officiating cost the Denver Broncos a game against the Chicago Bears just two weekends back. And yet this is a violent sport. And despite the best efforts of league officials to encase quarterbacks in bubble wrap, there is no legislating contact out of the equation. This was also seen two weekends back as future Hall of Fame quarterbacks Drew Brees and Ben Roethlisberger found themselves out for two months and the entire season respectively for injuries to their thumb and elbow. In addition, Jacksonville Jaguars quarterback Nick Foles is out for the season with a broken collarbone and wear and tear has sent the 2015 MVP Cam Newton to the sidelines with an undisclosed foot injury. This all happens after another Pro Bowler, Andrew Luck, 
retired before the start of the season. And in a flukier injury, the Jets have lost their quarterback, Sam Darnold, to mononucleosis. Now people scoff at mono, the kissing disease. But the virus, so often associated with kids, causes the enlarging of the spleen. And playing tackle football with an enlarged spleen could result in death. Now with each star quarterback that falls by the wayside, one question looms even larger. Will Colin Kaepernick, after over two years in exile, finally be signed by an NFL team? Kaepernick, still only 21 years old, is, according to people I've spoken with who know him well, in the best shape of his life, waking up at 5 a.m. for daily workouts. His agent has reportedly reached out to several of these teams in need of quarterbacks to see about getting a tryout. By signing Kaepernick, the NFL could close the book on a true instance of cancel culture of denying Kaepernick his livelihood because he dared stand up to racist police violence. The nature of Kaepernick's exile is so egregious that Martin Luther King III called for a boycott just last week against the NFL until Kaepernick is signed. The question now is whether the profit-oriented but deeply right-wing NFL ownership believes that Kaepernick has more value on the field or as a pariah, a cautionary tale to warn other NFL players to toe the line and never use the league's platform to protest racism and police violence. The league entered a partnership with Jay-Z to turn the page on Kaepernick and even paid him a collusion settlement. But this chapter will never truly end as long as Kaepernick wants to play and can't secure employment. Until this week, his value has shamefully been seen as a pariah and teams have sacrificed winning to carry out this punishment. Yet now, with so many quarterbacks unable to play, it's possible that could change. Unfortunately, as of this writing, the Saints, Jets, and Steelers have already signed quarterbacks far less accomplished than Kaepernick to round out their rosters. The NFL has a chance to right a historic wrong and actually do the correct thing. But if we know anything about this league, it would be very wise for us to not hold our breath. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to former NFL wide receiver Calvin Johnson, who went public and talked about how he had at least nine concussions as an NFL player and smoked weed after every game to avoid what he describes as the rampant abuse of opioids in the league. If you know anything about the harm of opioids, and I'm sure you do, it's actually lowering the life expectancy of men throughout the country. And if you know anything about the positive effects of marijuana use, particularly when treating concussions, and if you know anything about the push by players, both behind the scenes and in front of the bright lights, to actually allow NFL players to use medical marijuana, then you know that Calvin Johnson's voice 
is very needed on this question. He just stood up, told the truth. Thank you, Calvin Johnson. You get this week's Just Stand Up Award. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award this week. Sit your ass down. Goes to football coach Mike Leach. People might have heard that legislation just passed unanimously in the California State Senate to allow college athletes to profit off of their likeness. And Mike Leach had something to say about it. He said, The state of California has trouble keeping their streets clean right now. So my thought is that they probably ought to focus on that. That's just one man's opinion. I'm sure I'm probably wrong, but at the rate that California is handling their infrastructure and some of their other problems, I think we'll see how they do with that before I really think it would be helpful for the legislature in California to enter into college football. Blah, blah, blah. Now, David Roth of Deadspin had a great observation about this. He said, why would Mike Leach or anyone else answer a question about paying athletes with a monologue like this? For the same boring and immediately obvious reason that homelessness, and especially homelessness in California, has recently become a fixation for Donald Trump, which is that he saw it on TV. Yes, this has been an obsession with Fox News recently, as proposals have been put forward to actually take the homeless and herd them into a concentration camp of sorts in California, with Donald Trump saying that they're ruining uh, the real estate value of the state. I mean, these are disgusting, bottom-feeding parasites. And Mike Leach is just a barnacle at the bottom of their boat. Uh, But maybe Mike Leach should worry instead about his own million-dollar salary and the utter injustice that his players are giving their blood, sweat, and tears to make him the well-rounded figure that he is. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, Thank you so much, Maya Moore, for coming on the show. That was utterly fantastic. Thank you so much for your courage and your articulation of these issues. Thank you to everybody out there listening. Uh, If you like the show, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a little comment, all that stuff. We read them. It makes a huge difference to us. If you want to support the show, you can always go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. That is appreciated. If you want to talk to me, Dave Zirin, you can always hit me up at edgeofsports on Twitter or edgeofsports at gmail.com. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.